The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Of you make friends, I'm just trying to help you make a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. And then, and then there were six. Ooh, that's how I'm feeling about the magnificent ones. The seven stocks reminded people of the fabulous movie where seven of our most badass gunfighters went to Mexico to save a village from some cynical, vicious bandits. But that little magnificent seven moniker may have reached the end, the end of the line, because alas, not all seven are still magnificent. I think it's time to accept that Tesla has been shot. Not unlike Harry Locke, the first gunfighter to go down in the movie. And we either need to rename the group or perhaps the Super Six, maybe. Or search for a replacement. Get a seventh. Yep, on a sedate day where the market, I don't know, was down gained 138 points, as be advanced 0.22%. Both to record highs, NASDAQ climbed 0.32%. I think it's time that we think for a magnificent reshuffle. And I don't do this easily, because you know I respect the work of Elon Musk. I respect Tesla. First, why does Tesla have to leave? Beyond the creative license of cinematic analogy? Well, how about because it was at $299 in July of last year, and now it's at 208 Maybe because it's worth $663 billion now, well off the trillion-dollar goalposts that we want these companies to have, or at least as, as tilt to? Doesn't help that Tesla stock has fallen 16% year-to-date. By comparison, standout NVIDIA, well, look at this, 21%. The other five, they're all in the black. Look at these numbers. Look at that number. It says it all. Or maybe in two days when Tesla reports, we'll discover that the electric vehicle business has peaked and the solar business isn't going to make up for it. In the last few months, we've seen a host of ailments to the, uh, to the Tesla story, and it's gotten harder and harder to turn a blind eye to them. We ignore it, but we shouldn't anymore. Flagging sales in China versus other Chinese uh, manufacturers, BYD, overtaking them as the largest electric vehicle maker in the fourth quarter sales. Possible U.S. saturation, a boutique pickup truck that is only going to challenge the F-150 in sales anytime soon. 
And let's not forget the declining value of the cars themselves, as we learn from Hertz, which owns a huge fleet of Teslas. It's an untold story. It's one that deserves more press. These electric vehicles are not keeping their value the way that we thought they would. Oh, and they aren't easy to repair either. Hertz found out too late to save their near-term earnings. Now, none of this is really Tesla's fault. Yeah, I, I don't blame Elon Musk either, well, except for saying that he'd need to almost double his stake in the company in order to take it to the next AI level. That's a little too extortionate for my taste. In the end, though, it's time to admit that until, that until there are far more charging stations, maybe, and the cars have more battery power, or until we get even bigger federal subsidies, the electric vehicle space is challenged. I'm calling it a challenge. Unless Musk, of course, can develop a battery that can go, say, twice as far as a normal industrial combustion gas tank. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Magnificent said are nothing if not growth companies. Yet Tesla right now has hit, let's say, a growth pause. The standards are high, high enough now to disqualify it from the seven. So should we add a new name? I mean, what do you think? I mean, to get it back to seven, keep it at super six? It's not clear. We're seeing some incredible numbers from NVIDIA. That is for certain. There's a hilarious piece out today by Ben Reichus at Melius Research that talks about how well NVIDIA is doing. Uh, Ben's been the most vocal about how this company should be valued both for its software, not just its hardware. He believes NVIDIA is very inexpensive because people only see the hardware side of the equation. Today, he talks about how if you want your stock to go up in, in value, all you need to do is affiliate yourself with NVIDIA in a more dynamic way, including exposure to its AI enterprise software and DGX Cloud, which it unveiled March of last year. Now, Ben's noticed a pattern that those who use the DGX cloud have seen some real success. Amgen ServiceNow reports this week, consider it a halo effect. Your stock gets bumped the more you affiliate with NVIDIA. And NVIDIA's stock goes up the more affiliations it obtains. Virtuous circle. All right, I know it sounds chimerical. But Ben talks about how it might be Google's turn to get the NVIDIA bump. And then maybe a one-quarter or a two-quarter delay, it'll be Amazon's turn. But there is a synergistic impact, and it can't be ignored. It's the same way that Meta Platform saw its stock take off when we heard it was buying a boatload of NVIDIA chips. It's how when you see CEO Jensen Wong with any major enterprise software company, it moves the stock of that company higher. Stuff like this is what sets apart NVIDIA, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta Platforms, and Microsoft, which, by the way, was an early adopter of NVIDIA. It's why they were placed in the pantheon of the former Magnificent 7 and now Super 6. Microsoft has the co-pilot AI numbers in, in its pocket, right? And as long as we believe they're strong, well, that's enough to keep the balls in the air there. I also like this morning, Truist came out with this terrific piece that raved about Google's search-related advertising and Amazon's advertising numbers. These dovetail with everything else I hear about how ad dollars are being spent, I should say funneled right now, to, the, to anything that's online and not so much on TV. The only thing missing is my understanding that Instagram ads are running ahead of plan. Now, Apple's gained some luster of late with its surprisingly strong launch for the Vision Pro, which just went on pre-order last week. Already some 160,000, 180,000 have been ordered, but some prominent analysts whom I've never heard of said don't be misled. They say pre-orders will end up meaning very little and all of the sales can be disappointing. You know what? When I read it, I said, yes, that's exactly what I want. I know, a little bizarre, right? But it, it, because that's how Apple's been the whole time. Hated, scorned, disrespected. Remember, I've been recommending this stock since it was around five. And so I, I've now come to believe that Apple's just a wall of worry stock. And as long as there's someone out there fretting about it, it can go higher. I am not concerned about Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA. They're still magnificent. But can anybody else join the group now if Tesla is taken out? I like to put forward a new name to keep the John Sturgis movie theme intact. How about Eli Lilly? Eli Lilly is a drug known as Munjaro for diabetes and Zep bound for obesity that threatens to be the most popular drug in history. 
you keep hearing about challengers. Right now, it's a once-a-week shot. Others are developing once-a-month shots. So Lily's working on that, too. Others are working on a pill form. So is Lily. But Lily has two things that the others don't. I had start on manufacturing the drug with gigantic new plants coming online and actual approval from the FDA for its own formulation, which means that it has such an edge on all the other comers, except Novo Nordisk, which was the first to get one of these drugs to be approved to begin with, even if it doesn't have Lilly scale. Now, not that long ago, Ken Lango, one of the greatest investors of our time, came on Squawk Box and said that Lilly could be the first trillion-dollar drug company. Right now, it's at nearly $600 billion. Ken is an amazing investor who's fascinated by healthcare, so he knows what the heck he's talking about. I think at this moment, we're faced with two choices. Tesla's valuation is currently $663 billion. We can project what Lilly might be worth down the line and anoint it, or we can wait till Tesla reports on Wednesday and see if the usual Tesla fanboys upgrade it, defend it, and find something to say that they love about it. I say, let's see what Tesla does. If it falters, we can keep things at a Super 6 level until Lilly reports on Feb 6. If Tesla can somehow pull a rabbit out of a hat, maybe I'm premature in calling its magnificent demise. But, man, Lilly keeps making new all-time highs while Tesla's still down nearly, 20, nearly 50% from its all-time high in 2021. Two ships passing in the night? Bottom line, we're ready no matter what. But to ignore the decline of Tesla or the advance of Eli Lilly is to reject the facts. There's a real challenge to Tesla's greatness. I don't see that going away anytime soon. Calls. Tony in Florida. Tony. Hey, Jim, how you doing, bud? Um, I'm doing well. You a big booyah for the uh, club. I love your uh, home stretch today. Uh, yeah, we're really going at it today. That's what I like. What's happening? Um, yeah, the stock you talked to it at the end, um, basically it had three earnings beats, but um, I'd like to buy it before earnings, and then if it does pull back, buy it after earnings. It's Starbucks, because me, I will never, ever stop drinking coffee, especially from Starbucks. Yeah, Tony, I like the triple venti cappuccino with skim wet. I am with you. Now, here's what, yes, and, and for those who didn't did listen to the home stretch today, it's a program that I put on. It's, it's an audio program I put on with, with, with Jeff Marks, my, my colleague. Uh, what we said was Starbucks is going to probably blow the quarter, okay? But we like the company, and the stock is down from 115 to 93. So if they blow the quarter, maybe it's not so bad. That's why I like Tony's approach a little more, a little before, a little after they blow the quarter, and then we see how it goes. Let's go to Blake in Ohio. Blake! Oh, yeah, Jim. What's going on? Ah, I don't know. I was watching the games like everybody else. What's happening with you? Oh, not too much. Um, just kind of, you know, thinking about the reminiscing on the Browns and uh, Joe Flacco, you know, throwing the ball around to the moon. I was kind of getting into aerospace on the uh, stock market. So okay. I just wanted to talk about uh, Spirit Aeros- uh, Aerospace. Yeah, you know, Spirit is... It's too hard. Sometimes I like to look at things as too hard and not too hard. It's not a way that people talk about because it's very visceral and it's very gut-oriented, but that's just too hard to stock to own. Too much of a battleground, too many things that could go wrong. So I'm going to have to take a pass. Let's go to Lou in Pennsylvania. Lou. Greetings, Jim, from your neighbor in Montgomery County outside of really? Philadelphia. Well, wow, what street? Yes. Um, I live uh, near um, Flower Town. Okay, I was, you know, I was, I was uh, right next to you. I was right, yeah, I used to, uh, I lived in Orland and uh, in Springfield, you know what I mean. What's up? Um, first of all, I'd like to talk to you mostly about our now almost defunct Eagles. Do you have any advice on that? On the Eagles? Yeah. I, I, I love Howie Roseman, what can I tell you? He'll, be, he'll, do he'll do. get us that. How about something that's easier, though? A stock. Okay. My stock is a large-cap pharmaceutical, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Company has been around for about 160 years, 
and this is a very low PE, under 13, has a tasty dividend, strong oncology department, especially Opdivo, right. uh, has uh, anticoagulants that are very widely used. Yes. With, and the neuroleptic, like Abilify, which is very well, well we, received. Right. So, well, I'll tell you, Lou, let's, let's just call as we see it here. This is, a, this is a company that is in a rebuilding year, okay? And the rebuilding year probably takes two years. They're saying maybe to 2030. We got to give this coach a chance. He's got to get some draft picks. He's got to be able to get some veterans in there. Doesn't have it yet, but he's paying you 5% until you get there. Not in the playoffs anytime soon. If you're being patient, Bristol Myers will work. Okay, to ignore the decline of Tesla or the advance of the stock of Eli Lilly is to reject the facts. There's a real challenge now to Tesla's greatness, and I don't see that going away anytime soon because it is, in the end, an EV company. That's why I think it may be time to reconsider our Magnificent 7 lineup for now. Or maybe it's just the Super 6. Wait, buddy, tonight, you called in, you stumped me about a little-known pharma stock, so I went and did my homework, and now I'm ready to give you an opine on Catalyst Pharmaceuticals. Then, the video of Dancing Jensen Wong has become almost as popular as NVIDIA stock itself. But where could the chipmaker's shares go from here after already hitting new high after new high? I'm going off the charts to find out. And Microsoft said that its recent high-level security breach was caused by a Russian state-based hackers. What does that mean uh, that for the cybersecurity space? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check in with the CEO of CrowdStrike to find out. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is 
constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know how much we care about your calls. On Friday, we got a call from Calvin in Massachusetts, who asked about Catalyst Pharmaceuticals. Now, the symbol here is CPRX for you home gamers. It's a stock I've gotten a lot of questions about in the past year. As Calvin pointed out, this thing recently pulled back after the company announced a secondary offering earlier this month. More on that in a moment. And he wanted to know if we're getting a good buying opportunity here. I didn't want to cuff it. So I told him I'd take a closer look and circle back after doing the homework, because that's what we do on Man Money. So what's the catalyst pharmaceutical story? Frankly, I don't love it, but I also don't hate it. This is a commercial stage biopharma company focused on treating with rare diseases. They've got two drugs on the market. Now they got a third one coming. Now catalyst main drug for DAPS is approved for the treatment of Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome or LEMS. That is a debilitating neuromuscular disorder that often shows up in patients with cancer especially small cell lung cancer. Initially, after Ferdops got FDA approval in 2018, there was some trouble from a much lower priced competitor. In response, Catalyst sued the FDA, arguing that it should have patent protection under the Orphan Drug Act. And the company won a U.S. Court of Appeals ruling in 2022 that affirmed the drug's protected status for LEMS until at least May of 2026. But because this is an orphan drug, it's insanely expensive. They priced it at $375,000 right out of the gate. Now, I know it sounds extortionate, but you see, nobody would develop drugs for ultra-rare diseases unless they could charge sky-high prices. Good thing insurance covers it. For Dab's sales have grown from $102 million in 2019 to $214 million in 2022. And the consensus estimate is for 2023 sales to be $257 million. Catalyst believes they can keep growing, although there's a ceiling here because only three hundred six. Uh, 3,600 to 5,600 people should have LEMS in the United States. Remember, that's what an orphan drug population looks like. So far, they've treated 1,100, and there's another 800 who are diagnosed but haven't yet been treated. That may sound like nothing, but remember, it costs 375,000. Meanwhile, Catalyst plans to expand to other parts of the world as well. Their Japanese partner just submitted this drug for approval last month. How about their other drug that's on the market? A year ago, Catalyst bought the U.S. rights to Ficumpa, and that is from Japanese pharmaceutical giant Isai. This is a treatment for rare forms of epilepsy. And it already had FDA approval when they bought it. According to the, the analyst consensus, Ficompa likely did $136 million of sales last year. And the drug has patent protection through May of 2025 or possibly June of 2026. Again, not that far from now. The final piece to this puzzle is a drug called Agamry, which Calus acquired from a Swiss biotech company last July. This is a novel oral corticosteroid for the treatment of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a terrible disease, one of those ultra-rare diseases. Agamry then got FDA approval in late October, should launch sometime this quarter. According to the analysts at Oppenheimer, who initiated coverage of Catalyst with a buy rating, they think this drug could do $300 million in peak sales in 2028 because it's better than the competition. While the competitor is about to lose patent protection, Oppenheimer says Catalyst drug is so much better that insurance companies will be willing to pay up for it. Plus, they think the stock can double, double to $30 from here. But while I'm mentioning this Opco initiation catalyst from last month, I have an observation. 
See, these guys talked about how the company can generate enough cash to remain independent from the capital markets, meaning they won't have to raise money. But then, perhaps ironically, perhaps not. They just two weeks later announced a secondary offering with Oppenheimer, one of the managers. That's the exact same firm that told you they didn't need the money. And they were listed as a co-manager for the offering. So you might have thought this one sounded great, didn't need the money. And then, boom, you get hit with the secondary. What happened with the secondary? The stock dropped 15 percent, hurting guys like our caller. Part for the course on Wall Street, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. Now, there's something else about Catalyst Farm that's worth noting. The company's under new management after replacing its CEO and CFO at the end of last year. The company's former CEO, Patrick McEnany, who was also co-founder, remains in place as Catalyst chairman announced his intention to retire as CEO in July. His replacement, industry veteran Richard Daly, was appointed in October, officially took over at the beginning of this year. Now, separately, last month, Catalyst announced that its former CFO would also retire at the end of last year. Now, see, when I see something like this, specifically a a company's co-founder and longtime CEO retiring along with a longtime lieutenant, that makes me think that maybe Catalyst may be soon ripe for a sale. However, if you were buying the stock betting on takeover this month, secondary offering seems to make that a lot less likely. At the very least, the company plans to keep operating independently for some time. If anything, Catalyst likely to keep acquiring drugs from other players. That's too bad, because I think the best outcome could be an acquisition of Catalyst. Rare diseases are somewhat of a hot area in biopharma M&A right now. Notably, with Amgen's nearly $28 billion deal to acquire Horizon Therapeutics. Of course, a takeover is not necessarily off the table for good. Maybe Catalyst is just raising money for the new drug launch. And by the way, if Catalyst were to get a bid with a horizon-like valuation, it could be worth something like 24 to 25 bucks per share on last year's number, or possibly much more if you use this year's estimate. But I'm not sure that Catalyst deserves a horizon-like multiple. Horizon had some amazing drugs. While a takeout's still your best-case scenario, if you're talking about Catalyst as an independent company, you know what, candidly, my feelings are just plain lukewarm. Don't buy, don't buy, don't buy, don't Candidly, buy. Candidly, I don't love their business model. It's focused on licensing other companies' drugs, not their own, and hoping to do well with them commercially. To some extent, that's just financial engineering. I'd much rather invest in biotech companies that, you know, come up with their own drugs. Making matters worse, Catalyst, two drugs that are currently in the market, they really only have patent protection for another couple of years. That is a bad situation. All that said, Catalyst models are inherently less risky than trying to innovate yourself. They don't have to worry about, say, a pipeline drug uh, failing in a clinical trial and being worthless. They just buy them from other companies, uh, from other firms, after they succeed. Underscoring this point, Catalyst has been profitable since 2019 when it first started selling for dApps. In fact, they're expected to earn more than $2 per share this year, which makes this $14 and change stock seem mighty cheap. But here's the bottom line. When I look in, when I do the homework on these, sometimes they're really complex. This is a complex one. I do not think, after doing the homework, that Catalyst Farm is going to hurt you much. And while I bemoaned the secondary offering earlier, getting in after secondary is taking place is hardly the worst thing. At least you won't be surprised with another secondary that causes a 15% slide anytime soon, like we got earlier this month. Best case scenario here is a takeover. But that's also not likely uh, after a big secondary and after the drugs are about to come off patent. So, in my opinion, Catalyst, it's just okay. It's all right to own. Find enough option, but let me tell you something. There are many, many, much better drug companies out there for you. Their money's back in. Coming up, last year, the modern-day Da Vinci led his company to the top of the semiconductor heap. Can that magic spread sector-wide this year? Kramer goes off the charts to find out. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The whole semiconductor cohort is now roaring as Wall Street bets that the industry's finally bottomed. With a new PC refresh cycle on the way, a view that I really believe in, I've talked about this before, but whenever I find a new thesis, I always like to look for confirmation wherever I can find it. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with Dan Fitzpatrick. He's that terrific technician who's the founder of Stock Market Mentor. He's host of his own podcast, The Fitz Factor. He pounded the table on NVIDIA in early September saying you should hang on through the near-term turbulence. Come on, that was a great call. Now Fitzpatrick points out that we're seeing big moves in a much broader array of semiconductor stocks, and he thinks... This could be a very good year for the group because big institutional money managers simply can't get enough of them. Yep, right now, he says the semiconductor stocks are under institutional accumulation. But does that mean it's the right time for you to buy? Okay, let's take a closer look, starting with the weekly chart of the Van X Semiconductor ETF. That's called the SMH. It's what we all use, and this one goes back to 2019. Now, Fitzpatrick points out that the SMH, here represented by candlesticks... Okay, Uh, has been in a long term uptrend ever since making a big capitulation low in early 2020 during the initial COVID meltdown. Of course, there's been some medium term turbulence along the way. Uh, Buying peaked in late 2021, SMEs around 160 at the time, and the Fed started raising interest rates and the world moved on from the pandemic. No more COVID era home office spending boost particularly PCs. And that's when the semiconductor ETF pulled back below its 40-week moving average, ultimately pulling back nearly 50% from the highs. This is pretty ugly, okay? Fitzpatrick notes that the reversal back then was on pretty high volume, which is how you knew the decline was the real deal. But by late 2022, though, the semis bottomed along with the rest of the market, and the SMH has been trading steadily higher ever since. Look at this nice run. Last July, the, the... ETF tested the 160 level and it failed. Okay, that was a bummer. All right. But then uh, uh, the floor collapsed. The SMH started falling apart again. This is when all things tech were getting killed by skyrocketing long term interest rates. Remember, these, it has one component that's earnings, but another component that's interest rates. When interest rates go sky high, these get crushed. It's always been the case. However, Fitzpatrick says you could tell the pullback this summer was different from the pullback in 2022. This time, the SMH was declining on low volume. Remember, we went this volume versus is volume. Okay, so this is the real deal. This is not. Uh, the slope on the pullback was shallower, and when it tested the 40-week moving average, that floor of support actually held. Okay, 40-week is blue. This time held. Okay, that's because it's light volume. Uh, leading to a fabulous rebound in the fall. The SMH broke out to new highs in November and it's still going strong. According to Fitzpatrick, this is exactly what institutional buying looks like. As he sees it, the SMH could rally another 25% over the next year. I mean, not in a straight line, okay? So it's not going to, you know, he's looking like that, not, not parabolic. I hate parabolic. Uh, right now, the stock's running along the upper Bollinger Bands. Those bands are measures of volatility. Fitz considers this a good sign. He recommends waiting for a temporary pullback, the, the 10-week moving average, before you truly pull the trigger. And now we're speaking of 10-week. That means he'd like to see, again, remember, these are candlesticks. He wants it to come back down a little bit like that. I know too small to see, but trust me, it's still a decline. I don't do anything. Don't pull the trigger until you get that. Nothing wrong with putting on a small position, but I'd rather have you wait. Now, let's take a look at the weekly chart of two fairly different kinds of tech companies. 
NVIDIA and super microcomputer. One will be a week, like, I'll tell you, we'll do, why don't we do one weekly and one daily? When Patrick looks at the action in video, he, he thinks that this nearly $600 stock could go to $900 purely on the basis of the chart pattern. While NVIDIA had a monster 365% gain, 365% gain from the bottom in 2022, that move eventually stalled at 500. And that's a big, obvious number. Did you know that Fitch says these big, obvious numbers are important to watch because people actually care about the stuff? Even if, actually speaking, it shouldn't matter at all, right? For the better part of the year, people would see NVIDIA at $500 and figure it was time to sell every time it got there. It was just a wall. It was a ceiling. That's what we call it. it. Took a long time for the stock to finally break out the upside just a couple weeks ago, and within days it was the 600. Now, during the second half of last year, Fitzpatrick says Nvidia really just drifted sideways, giving the key moving average here some time to normalize. They gradually flattened out and caught up the share price. For Fitz, this is a great setup for what's known as a continuation move. You get a big rally, stock digests its gains for a long period of time, as he said it would, and then finally starts roaring again which is where we are now. For NVIDIA, 500 is the new floor of support instead of the resistance. So where's the next big ceiling of resistance? Okay, the stock rallied roughly $400 from its 2022 lows until it stalled out of 500. Fitzpatrick says these moves often repeat themselves in scale, which means NVIDIA could have another $400 rally. It takes it to 900. I know, it sounds simplistic, but you'd be surprised how often this technique works. Right now, it can work because money managers can't get enough of the semiconductor stocks, and the magnificent NVIDIA is the best of the semis. Fitz thinks the big money will steadily push it higher, and I bet he is right. Finally, how about Supermicrocomputer, a San Jose-based maker of server equipment, including chips? Now, back on Friday, Supermicro stock surged 35%, which is what you're seeing right here, okay? 35%. After the company raised guidance, today it jumped another 3%. Both moves on massive volume. See this? That tells you again. What does he say? It's true. The average volume for Supermicro is about 4.2 million shares. On Friday, it was over 23 million. Fitzpatrick says it's pure institutional buyer. By the way, I recommended this one in December, and since then, the stock's rallied nearly 200 bucks. Should we stick with it? Check out Supermicro's daily charger. Fitz points out that the stock spent five months building a flat base from August into January. Traded sideways for so long that the 50-day moving average flattened out, and the 200-day moving average started catching up. 200-day blue, 50 flattened out. There's the flat out, and then it comes up to this, okay? 50, see that? That's uh, Fitzpatrick says it's a great setup for a stock that's been in an uptrend because it's a sign of consistent demand. Even though Supermicro seems stuck below $300, people kept buying it on pullbacks. Then, a few weeks ago, the stock broke out above $300 before briefly pulling back to its 50-day moving average. In other words, it made a higher high and then a higher low. After Friday's run, it's finally above its old ceiling of resistance. Forget $300. It's already shot through $400. Whoa. How far can this move take it? Fitzpatrick notes the Supermicro pulled back from August through October. That was a $130 decline. If we use the August high of 357 as the reference point, then add $130 onto it, Fitz thinks that Supermicro can go to 487 Wow which is just about where the stock traded today before selling off, coming back down to the 430s. Doesn't mean the move is over, but Fitzpatrick recommends waiting for a better entry point. I share his trepidation about pulling it right here. Here's the bottom line. The charts is interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick just that semiconductor stocks have a lot more room to run, although some of them, like NVIDIA, seem a lot more attractive at these levels than something like Supermicro that just rocketed higher on Friday. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave! Dr. Kramer, Happy New Year, my good man. Oh, same to you. Thank you so much, Dave. What's going on? What's going on in the Illini? Jim, 
I'm glad yeah. to see your recent charitable trust bullpen edition of advanced micro devices after selling the stock late last year. Recently, CEO Lisa Sue's company has developed the MI300X processor to compete against NVIDIA's popular H100 processor. This has resulted in a multi-year partnership with Microsoft. So, Jim, up 70% since entering your bullpen three months ago, its recent five-day 10% run-up, and today's pullback is now a good time to consider opening a position in AMD. Well, you know, Dave, I got my meeting on Wednesday uh, at 12. That's our Jeff and I were going to do our uh, convene our, our conference. And I didn't do this right. I was too chary. I was too indecisive. And I let the stock get in ahead of me. And I, I, I feel terrible because I, Lisa Sue was right the whole way. She got it right. I kept thinking there'd be a pullback and there wasn't. I now feel that I have screwed it up. And I'm too late, and I'm not sure exactly what to do other than just own the fact, Dave, that I didn't do my job well. Let's go to Jeff in California, please, Jeff. Hey, Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Hey, Jimmy, you gave some great advice about six months ago to buy lots of Palo Alto and CrowdStrike. So I bought about 42000 of each, and it's done nothing except go up and up and up, Jimmy. So Jeez. thank you for that. Forty-two thousand. That's free. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah. that's great. Oh man, love you, Jimmy. Thank hey, you. Jimmy. Um, I found out recently there's a stock statistically that everybody's been ignoring. God only knows why, because I don't. Because this stock, I look at graphs, and this stock is in the top five percent of all stocks. It's called Arista Networks, and it's a cloud network solution company. I don't know what the heck that means, Jimmy. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it does mean. It means that they make a lot of money. No, Jay, look, Jay Shree is a fantastic executive. It's kind of a, a super Cisco right now. Jay Shree, you'll always welcome on the show. They've done so much great. They're a high multiple stock, but they make a lot of money, and they are an ideal cloud networking solution company that should be bought. All right. Now, the charts interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick suggest the semiconductor stocks have a lot more room to run. Though it's worth noting that some of them, like NVIDIA, seem a lot more attractive at these levels than others. Much more made money, including my Susan, with CrowdStrike. Microsoft was the latest high-profile player in the face of major email hack. So do big firms need to up their security uh, tactics? Maybe after hackers successfully targeted the biggest company in the world? I'm getting more color with CrowdStrike's CEO. He knows. And many analysts expect multiple rate cuts this year, including one of the group that still expects five. But I got a different take based on what I'm seeing in the economy. I'm revealing what it is. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. As cyber attacks continue to dominate the headlines, it's starting to feel like no company is safe from these debilitating digital assaults. Hey, look, just last week, even Microsoft got hacked by a Russian state-sponsored actor. Microsoft's got a huge cybersecurity business itself. So now some people are wondering, how reliable can any cybersecurity firm be in this environment? And that's why I thought it'd be a good time to check in with Kramer Fave CrowdStrike. That's a cloud-native cybersecurity kingpin. Stock up more than 17% year-to-date, surging 142% in 2023. Let's take a close look with George Kurtz, the co-founder, president, and CEO of CrowdStrike, to get a better read of the situation. Mr. Kurtz, welcome back to Man Money. Great to be here, Jim. Okay, so George, explain to me, uh, first of all, how this could happen. You've got a company that has got the largest 
largest business in the world for, for cyber attacks. And yet here it is being compromised by Midnight Blizzard. And is this something that you've heard of, Midnight Blizzard? And it should have been something that, that he could have stopped. Sure, Jim. Well, obviously, uh, as we talked about many times, security is a hard problem and the adversaries determine what we're talking about here is the Russian SVR, which is the equivalent of the U.S. CIA, if you will, uh, just to make it easy for your for your viewers. Um, It's a very determined adversary. And this is not the first time that they penetrated Microsoft's network. We talk about SolarWinds hack. It really should be called the Microsoft hack because they were a big part of uh, that compromise uh, in terms of having their infrastructure and credentials uh, being compromised and used in that solar winds attack. So when we think about the SVR, we think about the Russians, they're very determined. And it, it shows you, you know, the, the level of security that is needed to be able to keep these adversaries out. Well, is it possible that any one company can do it? I mean, shouldn't a, say, Microsoft combine with CrowdStrike, maybe together, more minds, uh, more uh, ability to be able to spot something? Wouldn't that be a good way to go? Well, I think this gets back to what you and I have talked about many times. Good enough security is not good enough. And I think this is one of those areas. If I take my CEO hat off and I put on my, my Patriot hat, which I am, Jim, an American, I think what you're seeing here is Uh, systemic failures by Microsoft, putting not only their customers at risk, but the U.S. government at risk, which is a big customer of theirs. We saw this in the fall when the Secretary of Commerce's email was compromised. We saw this in 22 when Lapsus, a uh, teenage group, was able to compromise Microsoft. We saw this with SolarWinds. So the hits keep coming. And at some point, we have to say, is good enough security good enough? All right, now just, you know, we're reaching out to Microsoft for comment, obviously, because Microsoft has, is a great company, we all know. But I hear something from J.P. Morgan that came out January 8th. It said, Microsoft's market share is not mutually exclusive. Enterprises tend to use standalone endpoint vendors in addition to Microsoft. Although the scale of Microsoft's endpoint real estate and telemetry can be viewed as a competitive advantage, the scale cuts both ways, as Microsoft also remains the source of a large number of vulnerabilities. Is that how you see it? Well, when we actually get called in to do incident response, Jim, and and, uh, we're one of the largest firms that actually come in, in addition to our technology, but come in and help customers respond from these breaches, right? And typically, they're not customers, right? They're they're prospects that we turn into customers. So at the end of the day, what do we see? We see Microsoft vulnerabilities being exploited. We see the failure in their directory services infrastructure being abused and identities being stolen and being used to compromise systems across the network. So this is what we actually see. So we have many Microsoft customers, even with their E5 licenses, which are still CrowdStrike customers because they're looking for that added layer of protection, which is what the report you mentioned was going to. All right, do you think people are aware this was apparently went to the highest level? The senior leadership team got hacked. What, what did the, what, what have they found the Russians? I mean, it could be anything, right? It, it could be anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm confused because when I read the blog post that came out on a Friday and the AK came out, that came out on a, a Friday night, um, you know, I'm confused because what Microsoft talks about is it was a non-production test environment. So how does a non-production test environment lead to the compromise of the most senior officials in Microsoft, their emails uh, in, in, in their organization? So I think there's a lot more that that's going to come out on this. And you know, I'm, again, confused by reading this, but I'll wait and see what, what comes out. So you're saying that Microsoft wasn't as forthcoming as you'd like to see in this AK? 
Well, when you drop this on a Friday at five o'clock and you have scant details, I think there is you know, more to come on it. And when you look at some of the things that Microsoft talks about, it's secure initiatives and it's marketing around this. Um, if they spent some more time on, on coming clean on what happened here and less on the marketing and papering over it, I think it would be good for the industry. Well, you are making it sound like if Microsoft isn't maybe perhaps your single biggest source of clients. Well, you know what? We're helping uh, all kinds of customers. And I think what I want to get back to is security is a hard problem. One company is not going to solve it all. We're solving a big problem for our customers and we're helping them protect against these Microsoft type of breaches and vulnerabilities. Well, and obviously that's been a successful formula. All right, well, we know we've had Microsoft on. They care passionately about this. I'm wondering whether boards or directors care passionately about it. There's talk that there could be personal liability of members of the boards of directors if they're not taking this stuff seriously. Well, this is one of the key areas, and, and we kind of get back to this disclosure at five on a Friday. This was part of the new SEC rules. We had four days to actually, uh, once you figure it out, you have four days to disclose it. This particular issue, I guess, stemmed in November. They finally figured it out, and it came out uh, last week. But this is why the security industry and the, um, how important it is has moved from the back room into the boardroom because of this personal liability, because of what happened with the SEC's mandates. It is absolutely critical to make sure that organizations can protect themselves, but identify a breach like this or an incident before it becomes in, 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 into a massive breach within a short period of time. Oh, well, let me let me play devil's advocate. I'm Microsoft. I'm listening to this interview. I'm thinking, God, Kramer just so in love with CrowdStrike, just completely slags us. So I'm going to ask the logical question. Have you stopped Midnight Blizzard? We have stopped my Midnight Blizzard. Uh, we call it Cozy Bear. And, and um, this is one of those areas where, again, this is a very determined adversary, but we've seen Cozy Bear in many different accounts. And the thing that makes them so difficult is they're low and slow, the way they operate. If you look at some of the campaigns that have taken place over the years, it's taken place over many years, right? This is how patient they are. So you have to have a level of telemetry and you have to have the right algorithms, which we've worked on for 10 plus years to be able to identify and take all these low signals, string them together and say, we have an adversary in the network. This is different than some of the other groups. Some of the Chinese groups are smash and grabs. Even some of the other uh, Russian groups are more smash and grabs. These are low and slow, very patient, very determined, and, and very hard to actually uh, detect. Well, but look, we're able to do that. Well, look, I'm glad you came on. I, too, felt when I saw it that, wow, that seems to be very big. Sorry it came out so late on a Friday. Most people missed it. They were busy watching football. You and I were thinking about this. I want to thank George Kurtz, CrowdStrike co-founder, president, CEO. Thank you for coming on, George. Thank you for explaining the, the gravity of the situation. Thank you, Jim. Man, I'm going to be back here break. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, that's time for the lightning round. Kramer, start with Wade in California. Wade. Thanks for taking my call, Jim. Of course, hey, I'm calling about uh, with all the activity going on with uh, Bitcoin, with the ETF. I was wondering how the miners are going to play out in this particular riot platform. Mm, I don't trust it. I got to tell you something. I checked in with Larry Williams again. Now, this is now 
he has been saying, you got to get out of Bitcoin. He's been so right. I called him and say, listen, aren't we done going down? He goes, no, stay away. August in Pennsylvania, August. Hey, Jim, big booyah from the great state of Pennsylvania. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Anyway, with, with earnings being announced on February 13th and expected to grow over 40% for the current year, stock closed down over 18% today of a year high of 1351. I wonder your opinion on ticker HOOD, Robinhood Market. I think they have too much exposure to options for their customers and Bitcoin for the customers. I need them to get a better base of customers. I suggest you go by Schwab. Let's go to Mitch in Illinois. Mitch. Hey, Jimmy. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you, Mitch? What's up? No bad. I had a question for you on a Chicago staple that sold over 11 million hot dogs last year. I was wondering your thoughts on Portillo's. You know, Portillo's is just a great quandary because remember, I told you they were they were just burying us under all that private equity stock. Well, the private equity guys, they were right to get out. And anyone who bought it was wrong. I'm glad we pushed back. It still sells at 39 times earnings. Too expensive for restaurant chain. Let's go to Matt in Massachusetts. Matt. Jim, how are we doing? All right, Matt. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Soho House. I'm not sure if it's a long or a short right now. You know, that's a British company. I haven't spent enough time looking at it. I'm going to have to come back to you with a little bit of uh, homework there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, cut the fantasy. Kramer takes on a rate cut chorus that's singing a silly tune. Next. So again this morning, there was a note from economists at Goldman Sachs debating whether the labor market's weakening or just returned to normal. And then almost as a throwaway line at the end, quote, we continue to expect the Fed to begin the easing cycle this spring with the first 25 basis point cut in the funds rate, most likely at the March meeting, end quote, March rate cut. That's what Wall Street was heavily betting on until a week and a half ago. But after a series of strong economic data points, the market's come to its senses. Then we see this house view from the Goldman economists who still believe there will only be five rate cuts this year. And it's clear, clear that many people, not me, but many people are still banking on an extremely dovish Federal Reserve. First, understand this whole wrap is a bonafide nightmare for people like me who try to pick stocks. I can see no weakness in the economy whatsoever to justify even three cuts at this moment. The only justification for starting to cut rates in March would be a sudden economic downturn of obscene proportions that will crush both the service and manufacturing sectors in the next six weeks. You probably want to sell all but the staples utilities if that happens. Right now, we have 3.7% unemployment in this country, for heaven's sake. You need at least 4.7% unemployment just by Goldman's stance on rate cuts. And for me, it's inconceivable that we could have so many layoffs in such a short period of time. Second, you need to see not just a decline in the rate of inflation, but outright declines in prices. They're two different things. I got bad news for Goldman Sachs. Other than Costco, I don't see a lot of companies cutting back prices to below where they were before the pandemic. The three most important categories, the ones people can't live without, food, shelter, transportation, are still way, 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 way up. I don't see why the Fed would declare a truce in the fight against inflation, which is what Goldman's calling for, because any rate cuts here would be more like unconditional surrender to inflation. If we truly get five rate cuts this year, I think it would provoke a spike in the price of homes, in rents, in autos, all of which must come down if we're ever going to beat inflation. I think this week will be very telling. You have three railroads reporting, CSX, Union Pacific, Norfolk Southern. I, I, they're going to give us a real good read on autos and housing because the materials needed to make this stuff go on rails. I think they are all going to be very strong or offer very strong forecasts, totally out of back with what Goldman's looking for. At the same time, you have to remember that we were estimated to have taken in 
millions of immigrants in the last couple of years, legal or otherwise. Many employers have a don't ask, don't tell philosophy here. But because our government has no real policy on what should be done with it to help these people, they often have no choice but to take whatever work they can find. That means they do the jobs that were at the epicenter of wage inflation, the jobs no one wanted. No one could be found to even do them unless you paid them more than the minimum wage. In other words, there may not be the same spike in wages we've had because immigration can keep labor costs down. But we still won't have wage rollbacks. A lot of that is just minimum wage law, by the way. Rollbacks are the only way you could justify having such a rapid series of rate cuts. What matters to me, though, is that at least I've gotten to the bottom of this ridiculous multi-rate cut scenario that keeps dogging us. It's all nonsense, people. It's all theoretical, not at all empirical, which is important because when Wall Street realizes the cuts aren't coming, then I think the stock market is going to get slammed. It's almost like they've created a construct that can't be met but gets people all excited about buying stocks. And then when the truth comes out, they sell in anger and disbelief that the Fed let them down. In reality, the Fed will most likely rely on the evidence, which is that we have a very strong economy. And if you didn't know better, you'd think their next move would be to raise interest rates, not cut them. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.